At Leia Healthcare, we always want to give our members more. So now you get unrestricted access to a world of benefits that will help you stay healthy. From convenient video calls with a GP to get prescriptions online, to easy access to experts when you finally want to do something about your ropey knee or dodgy back. And if you do need to see someone urgently, our clinics are available for minor injuries, all without you needing to put your hand in your pocket. Let's stay on top of your health, in every way. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Insurance provided by Ellipse Insurance Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare. Leia Healthcare Limited Trading as Leia Healthcare and Leia Life is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Unrestricted benefits are available until the end of August. Fair usage policy applies. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. sing it oh go for it no it's it's the vibe's gone now oh. the impulse is gone no do it no no now it's weird okay. i'll do it next time hi everyone welcome back how are you pause for response that's great <laughs> <laughs> what's been going on what's happening ellen any news oh and oh you're asking me i thought you're asking the listeners i thought that was a pause for response no. i'm going well how are you i've had a long day at work but I also had a long day at work. We did have some exciting things happen today. Our artist, well, not our artist, but an artist that we have paid to redo our Mitlu uh, logo sent us a draft without the colours today of what it's going to look like. And let me tell you, folks, it looks yuck. We look so good. I'm going to use it as my Tinder profile pic. It's so stunning. She's done such a good job. Um, if you don't know already, her name is Hannah Good. Um, Hannah Good, and you can find her on uh, Instagram. I will link her in our story at some point, uh, especially when the new logo comes out. She does such incredible work. She does commissions, and she has an amazing Instagram. It's such a great time. And, yeah, so we got the preview of that today, which is exciting. And it's also exciting because this is our second last episode here in Western Australia. Well, not we're yes, not physically is. here in Western Australia, but here in the but podcast spiritually. realm. Spiritually, spiritually we are in western australia yes and it's a two it's the second last it's our last case but it's our second last episode because it's our second last episode ellen's ellen's done a long one again i've done i've done my thing that i do where she does which, really long episodes where i do really long ones because i just go my thinking is is that if you put every single piece of information that's ever been written about a case, no man can send you an email saying, actually, you forgot to mention this. Which I don't think we've we ever respond, had. Yes, we have. Not in that. We, have, we get that all the time. People message us constantly saying, why didn't you talk about this thing? You missed this part of the case. And I'm like, look, you know what, guys? Sometimes we have to edit. <laughs> Sometimes things have to be missed. But anyway, how exciting. Um, before we start... Obviously, the usual Instagram, Facebook, Murder in the Land of Oz. Hit us up. Leave us a review. Go on iTunes. Leave us a review. If it's good. No, I, I take that back. If you have constructive criticism, I'll accept it. But if you're just going to accuse rate me Rate us of, five stars, but... Yeah. Rate us five stars, but give us constructive criticism yeah. at the same time. But That's if you're fine. just going to tell me to stop shrieking, then I will not accept. Uh, so we also have merch available on Tee Public and Redbubble. And then um, we also have Patreon 
Uh, we have a Patreon, so you can become a Patreon. We've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. Uh, we have different tiers of the Patreon, so you can donate um, money to the podcast, which helps us pay for reference uh, resources and references and all that stuff. Um, and uh, there's Mit- uh, there's Mitlu Patreon only content, and uh, we we have a Mitlu after dark. We have to do soon, don't we? Yes, Mitlu we after, forgot about that. Mitlu after dark, where we do. <laughs> It's mainly about astrology, but anyway. <laughs> but that's okay. I've, I've had some interesting. I've had some interesting things come up in my chart. I'd like to discuss. Ooh, stunning! Yeah. Um, so there's my that. Mercury's been all over the place. Oh, Mer- well, she's still in retrograde, isn't she? No, I think that's over now. Interesting, because this time last year was when it was going into retrograde when we had that really cooked weekend where I ruined my life. Oh. Mercury wasn't. Mercury's always in retrograde. It's always in retrograde in my heart. That bitch needs to spin forward occasionally because <laughs> I have enough problems. Oh, did I tell you that my so? Sorry. So we we are. If we could get sponsored by CoStar Astrology, I'd be really happy with that. Um, my sex my sex in love was like not in the red for the first time in like about eleven months the other day, and I didn't leave the house. So maybe that was why. Wow, we've you've cracked the code. Yeah, just don't leave the house and you'll be fine. Great, that sounds like a really good way forward. Rock on. Anyway, let's get cracking. Uh, who let's, are we talking about today? Today we are talking about a man by the name of Eric Edgar Cook. Oh boy. Oh, Nelly. Cook is cooked. Cook is cooked. First point of order, why is it that all serial killers, spoiler, he's a serial have killer, have three like names. three names. Jessica. It's, <laughs> no, but that's your first name. It doesn't count. It's fine. We both have two first names. It's not the same thing as having like your middle name be a part, like, you know, mm. like it's just, it's just, a, I just don't understand it. John Wayne Gacy, like how do all these people, what, what is the link there? Scientists do something about that. We're going to need Explain some numbers it. on this. I need some facts. I want a peer-reviewed article. I need to know. Anyway, we've actually already mentioned this guy. We have. Um, in our first episode in Western Australia because this is the homie who is buried in the same grave as Martha, Martha Rendell. Martha that's right. Yes. And I think I yes. brought him up so, a little bit in the uh, the Bernie's case as well. I believe he did because he's a very famous person in Western Australia crime history because he was the last person to be hanged in western australia i am very um, keen to know about this yes it's messed up i am not a fan of hanging or capital punishment in general but you know how sometimes you hear about cases and you're like yeah i get it it's justified this is one of those cases so let's begin at the beginning eric edgar cook was born on the 25th of february 1931 i believe that makes him a pisces <laughs> His mother, Christine, was enamored with the little bundle that she'd brought into the world. But his father, who was hilariously named Vivian, uh, hated his son from the moment he was born. No offense to any guys out there named Vivian. No, no but like, like, gender's not real. All names are gender neutral. Don't call your son Vivian. <laughs> yeah. So Eric was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. Oh, no. And surgeries... Surgeries to fix the deformities didn't really fix his father's hatred for his deformed son. And Vivian, who was also an abusive alcoholic, took his anger out on Eric for the entirety of his early life. 
Vivian also abused his wife, Christine, and his two daughters as well. So while Eric's surgeries had been successful, um, he still had a massive scar on his face and he mumbled when he spoke and he would keep his head down in public to hide the deformity. As you can probably imagine, this being like the 30s and also probably what happened today, he was bullied really badly at school. But what hurt Eric the most was being ostracized. He was excluded from activities with the other kids on and the very rare occasions the neighborhood kids would invite him to play were the highlights of his young life. Eric bounced from school to school, being bullied at each one, and as you can imagine, this had a pretty serious impact on his behavior. He was constantly acting out, and as a result, he was frequently caned and had other, you know, corporal punishments while he was at school. He wasn't necessarily a bad student. Like, they were like, he was smart. There's something there. Like, he's okay. He's good at school. But he wasn't necessarily the brightest person. He was just normal. And he was very glad to leave school at the minimum leaving age of 14. He worked as a delivery boy for a time, um, but he'd give most of his pay packet to his mother. So his father had a good job, but he never gave Christine any of his wages, meaning that Christine had to raise three children and work jobs at like factories and kitchens and stuff like that to support them. So basically, as soon as Eric was making money, he was giving the majority of his wages to his mother. Um, And because he was doing this, he began supplementing his income with petty thefts, stealing from his workplace and from anywhere he thought he could snatch a couple of pounds or two without being noticed. So at one point he joined the surf, like the local surf life saving club, and he he really enjoyed it. Um, He liked doing the activities and he got on really well with like the other people who were doing it, but he kind of, he made a He made a really big error in that he stole a watch from somebody and he had the watch engraved so it looked like he had been given a medal from the Surf Lifesaving Club and he showed people this watch and was like, look at this medal they gave me. Everybody at the Surf Lifesaving Club loves me. I'm so good at Surf Lifesaving. And then somebody was like, that is this guy's stolen watch and he had to return it and he was shamed for stealing the watch. Um, He had... This is not a good start. It's not a good start. It's not a good start. Um, he had a lot of health issues in addition to his, like, you know, the cleft palate and the cleft lip, which was fixed with surgery, but he still had ongoing problems. He had other health issues that would kind of recur throughout his life, and he's also incredibly clumsy. Um, he was always, he was always like, just in, like, these workplace accidents. I'm not going to go into detail on in all of them because it was, like, several chapters of the book that I read just detailing, like, workers' compensation claims. Um, but he was always on an, in and out of work, on workers' comp and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, the incident with the watch and also some of these health issues, like he would have blackouts and stuff like that, meant that he left the Surf Life Saving Club. Um, so he held down a number of labor jobs over the years, but he was on and off workers' compensation. Um, one of the One of the more serious injuries in his life happened when he was 16, it, he was working for the railway, but this didn't actually happen at work. He f- had his skull fractured because he was trying to stop head his injury. Head injuries, blackouts. What a pattern! Um, but no, he was trying to stop his father from hitting his mother, and his father hit him, and like his head knocked back up against a light switch, and it fractured his skull. Um, but Fifi. not wanting doll. What happened? What a diva. What did she do? She kicked a box. Oh, she doesn't like this story either. She's like, this is going down a dark path and I don't want to be a part of it. 
Um, yeah, so he had a skull fracture by his dad, but he didn't want to tell people at work that he was off because of his having, like, an abusive father. So he told people that he'd been in a fight. So on September 24, 1948, um, Cook joined the army and listening with the 1628 Battalion of the Citizens Military Force. And Cook absolutely loved military life, both the structure of it and the camaraderie. He also found out that he was a very, very good shot. So even though he was told that his speech impediment would prevent him from ever rising up through the ranks, this didn't discourage his passion. A month after joining the army, he committed his first serious break-in. So Cook had this, like, fun thing that he did where he would just like wander around the streets at night and like look into people's windows and like absolutely not maybe just maybe just watch people get changed a little bit like maybe just look into people's houses and like dream of having a better life like he he would do that at night that was his activity that's no it's not it's not a recommended evening (laughs) activity no don't do it could you imagine oh my god read the bible She's outraged. She's so angry. Anyway, no, I'm anyway. I'm against peeping toms. I yes, a hard stance, not a fan of peeping toms. Um so he he preferred to kind of do these activities obviously than go home and have to deal with the realities of his home life and his drunken father and everything like that. And he kind of felt that like from stealing things from like better off people, he was kind of like I'm getting it was justice. A bit of revenge. He's like, well, you know, this person has something that I feel like I deserve, so I'm going to take it from them, and that gives me that power back. So he stole a torch and a clock from 170 Adelaide Terrace, Perth, and he took all of like the clothes from the wardrobe and put them in the bed and uh, poured a bottle of wine on it to like ruin it. Just oh, fuck for the off! Funsies. Fuck off! Um, if someone came in and did that to me, I would be livid. If somebody took all the clothes out of your wardrobe and poured a bottle of wine on them, they would be doing damage to probably about $55,000 worth of clothing. Not that much, but a lot of money. But a lot, in the tens of thousands for sure. If somebody took all the clothes off my wardrobe and, like, poured wine on them, it would probably come up to, like, $18.50. My clothes aren't that expensive. But you got a lot of them. Anyway, that's true. So they fingerprinted the flat afterwards and they did find some fingerprints, but they didn't match anything on record because this was his first, like, big crime. Three weeks later, Cook broke into another flat just a few doors down. He didn't find anything worth stealing, but he again pulled all the clothes out of the wardrobe and slashed it all with a knife. He then started a fire and watched the fire burn for a short time before leaving the scene. He didn't, like, burn the whole flat down or anything like that, but he did cause, like, a couple hundred pounds worth of property damage. Two weeks later, Cook struck again, stealing 20 shillings, an engagement ring, a watch, and a fountain pen from another flat. Um, He was spotted by a woman in the neighboring flat, and he ran away, throwing all the jewelry and valuables um, into the river to escape detection. So he broke into several more houses and set a few more fires over this course in time. Um, Another accident at work put him on workers' compensation for a few months, and he spent this time at his grandmother's house to escape from his father. So he began doing more breaking, breaking, breaking and entering he stole some more stuff in north perth now near where his grandma lived um so his basic pattern was prowl around at night look into a few windows see see who's home um break into the house if it looks like they've got stuff worth stealing so he mostly stole like small items and money and only really set fires when he felt like it so at one house that he 
um, burgled and set alight. Police managed to find a set of fingerprints on a bottle and they were like, okay, we feel like there's a pattern going on here. We're gonna, we're gonna hold on to these. He celebrated his 18th birthday by setting a fire to a flat on Aberdeen Street, taking a bunch of dresses from a wardrobe and setting them alight. And also, he decided at this house to, as to phrase it in the impolite way, take a shit in a doll's cot. <laughs> he literally just, like, dropped trowel and was like, you know what, may as well. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? So much more. <sighs> so much more than you know, you sweet summer child. So... A week after that, um, he was actually caught by a neighbor. He was seen by one of the residents of 55 Nash Street while he was having a little rummage through the house. The gentleman confronted Eric, and Eric was like, okay, got my alibi. He was like, oh, I'm so- I'm the guy who lived next door. I'm sorry, I'm drunk. I must have come into the wrong house. And the guy was like, no, you aren't, and punched him in the face. Um, <laughs> See ya. <laughs> which was effective. Cook ran off, and the guy called the police. So on the 12th of March, 1949, Cook was tracked down and interviewed at his grandmother's house and his fingerprints were taken. So, of course, his fingerprints were a match to those that were left at the scene of those other break-ins. And when he was, like, confronted with this information, Cook admitted it pretty much straight away. He was like, okay, you got me. It was me. Um, and he said that he, the reason for the break-ins was because he was sh- short on money, um, having been on workers' compensation. Stop being um, clumsy at work. Yeah. <laughs> Stop Stop being, stop having a fractured skull because your father abused you and then having injuries at work. I'm not 100% sure it's all that side of things was all his fault. So two months after that, he appeared before a judge and he was convicted on two charges of stealing, seven charges of breaking and entering, and four counts of arson. So Cook was sentenced to three years jail, but he was re- released on probation after three months with the psychiatrist and the head of prisons agreeing that Cook was not beyond saving, but he just needed a little bit of punishment to scare him and deter him from continuing down the criminal path. Boy, they were wrong. <laughs> they made a, like, Big I would mistake. just like. Huge. Being like the head of prisons and like this psychiatrist who wrote this letter being like, you know, Cook is not, there was all old-timey language being like, he's not a born criminal, he's just, you know, been deterred away from God's light and stuff like that. Imagine opening the newspaper like 20 years later and seeing what he ended up doing. He would have been like, I have made an error. I'm going to quit my job and become a fishmonger. So as a condition of his parole, Cook attended sessions with a psychiatrist at Heathcote Hospital. And, but he did end up getting dismissed from the citizens' military force, as you can't be in the military with a criminal me- record, mix, which makes sense. But this is a pretty major blow to Cook. He did seem to want to give the straight and narrow a bit of a go. He got a new job. He started giving less of his wages to his mother, which meant he had a little bit more financial freedom and he could have a bit more of a life. Um, and he started attending the South Perth Methodist Church. There, the congregation overlooked Cook's troubled past and his deformity like a good Christian should. He joined the youth group and suddenly Cook was a part of tennis games, movie nights and Bible camps. He finally had like the kind of social life and inclusion that he'd always wanted and that he always felt like people were rejecting him from. He was well on his way to rehabilitation, getting a glowing review at the completion of his probation in 1951. At 21, Cook headed to Melbourne. He looked up the local Methodist mission they are and found a job and a place to stay. He enrolled again in the army, getting away with it for 14 weeks before his criminal past was discovered and he was dismissed. He headed back to Perth just before he turned 22. 
Shortly afterwards, he was arrested for breaking and entering. He had stolen a money box from a member of the South Perth Methodist Church congregation. He was placed on a good behaviour bond and sent on his way. Then he got a new job as a truck driver at the Metropolitan Markets, where he met a lovely young lass by the name of Sally Lavin. So was Sally was 17. Sally, Sally yeah. Oh, Sally. Oh, Sally. <laughs> oh, poor Sally. If I could turn back time. Um, Sally was 17. She was from Liverpool in England, and she was quite charmed by Eric Cook. So despite the fact that he kind of had a little bit of, you know, something going on in his face, he was very charming, and he always dressed really well and, like, presented himself in quite a gentlemanly manner to the ladies. Um, Today's equivalent is us being like, well... He was wearing shoes at Rick's, no less. <laughs> I'm charmed. I'm absolutely charmed. What? He has brunette. He's a brunette hair, glasses, and he's wearing a checkered shirt. I'm in. I'm in. Doesn't matter what else is happening. Nah, everything else irrelevant. So they got married in November of 1953, and a suspiciously short while later, in May of 1954, they had their first child, a boy named Michael. Oh, dear Sally. I think some, a little something happened out of wedlock there. Jesus was not involved <laughs> in that conception. <laughs> but they fixed it. They got married. It's fine. They can still go to heaven. Well, Eric won't, but never mind. Um, so they had a second son a year later, and although Eric enjoyed being married, he wasn't really the marriage type, you know what I mean? He was like, love having a woman at home to do all my cooking and cleaning and stuff for me. That's great. Big fan of that. Not a fan of fidelity. So he would he would go out on the town and, like, not wear his ring and, like, dress really nicely and, like, charm the ladies at, like, the Ten Pin Bowling Club, which is, like, his pastime. <laughs> It's them shoes. It really gets me going. <laughs> yeah. Then, then it's like, oh, is that man wearing? Is that man wearing a matching set of shoes <laughs> at the ten pin poles? I'm into it. Um, he also like he would do some less conventional things. Not that ten pin bowling is conventional, but he would do even less conventional things than that, like steal cars to follow girls home. So no, one thanks. evening. One evening, he stole a car to follow this girl home from, like, a hockey game he was at, but he crashed the car on the way, and he was arrested for stealing the car. Um, And this time, the cops weren't so lenient with him. He'd used up his second chance. In September of 1955, Eric was jailed for two years for stealing the car, with an additional six months for breaking the good behavior bond. He was released a little early in December of 1957 due to good behavior, and now up until this point, Cook's offending had been kind of at the level of like a petty criminal. He was known to police as a tea and sugar thief. So like, you know, just somebody who stole useless shit, really. They weren't like tea this and guy. Sugar. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah. They weren't like, well, this guy's Al Capone. You know what I mean? Like he's just a small time kind of crim. And the police, some of the police that like frequently arrested him and like had interactions with him, like kind of liked him a little bit because he was quite charming. So they were like, oh, what's up, Cookie? Like, how you doing? Fancy seeing you back here. They call him Cookie. They did call him Cookie. Everybody called him Cookie. I <laughs> refrained from calling him Cookie in this because I thought it was inappropriate. Yuck. Um, so, but in September of 1958, less than a year after being released from prison, Cook's criminal behavior escalated. 
So Cook was always motivated in part by a sense of wanting to exact some kind of revenge on society. As I said, he felt like stealing nice things from happy, well-off people somehow tipped the scale, righting some of the wrongs that he had felt had been unfairly given to him at birth. He was on one hand angry at the world, but on the other hand really desperate to fit into it at the same time. So he started getting these urges that he would later describe as being like feeling like the power of God. Like this feeling would just overcome him and he had to like succumb to it or otherwise like it wouldn't, he would like not be satisfied if that makes sense. All right. So one evening when, so Cook had kind of done his usual thing. He went out on the town. He was flirting with a few ladies and stuff like that. He would kind of always, he would go out and, you know, try and get with women and stuff like that and then after that he would go prowling around neighborhoods and he would watch women get changed he would watch you know he would watch like young couples who like hadn't closed the blinds you know getting intimate and stuff like that um and he continued to break into people's houses and he loved the feeling of like you know outsmarting them like breaking into their house and like sneaking in and rummaging through things and like taking things without anybody noticing. So he would never take anything big. He would just like go into people's purses and take take money. But sometimes he would leave like a little bit of money behind just so nobody realized that he was stealing from them. It was more like psychological than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's like, <clears throat> I swear to God, I had a $50 note in here. Yeah, I you're like, I didn't spend it. I didn't spend it. But then there's still like a $10 note there. You're and like, you're like, oh, but- maybe I spent it. I don't know that's the kind of thing that he would literally like get off on like that was his like that was his thing so on the evening of the 12th of september cook had been prowling around the neighborhood of victoria park an area that he prowled at many times before and he was familiar with a lot of the houses and also familiar with some of the young women that lived inside them that he'd followed or watched before so he spotted a car which was a ford console um, with the keys in the ignition out the front of a house that belonged to a woman that he had followed before so he stole the car. He What he would do when he stole cars, because he'd stole cars before. He'd only been caught a couple of times, but he had stolen quite a few cars before. So he would, like, roll the car out of the driveway. Like, like he'd push it out of the driveway without turning it on and, like, push it down the street a little way and turn, like, then start the car out of the driveway. Yeah. Or he would take out the interior light. So nobody, like, if there was somebody in the house, they wouldn't notice. Like, they wouldn't see the, like, lights come on when he put the ignition in the car. Um, and he always wore in his like criminal activities, he would always wear a pair of white women's gloves. I don't know why they were women's. That was never specified. Maybe, Maybe he, he just small had small hands. hands. He was a small guy. He was only like, I think he was five foot nine. Cookie small like that. hands. That's what they called him. <laughs> well, I'm old cookie small hands. I'm here to steal your car and ruin your life. Um, so put on the gloves, stole the car, rolled it down the driveway. Turned on the ignition, laid it down the road. So he drove into Hillview Terrace where he saw a woman riding her bike. So he pulled the car over and let her get far enough away, like gave her like a bit of a head start. Then he pulled off, racing towards her at full speed, knocked her off her bike and sent her flying through the air before she fell headfirst onto the road. Holy fucking shit. Okay, okay, all right, okay, okay, okay. Yep. This is taking a turn. He sped off, leaving her lying there in the road with the bicycle. Her bicycle, like, was still attached to the car. 
It got stuck in the grill of the car, so he drove off with the bicycle attached to his car. Um, he abandoned the car a mile or so away from the scene of the crime and just headed on home afterwards. The woman lay on the road for 45 minutes before a driver in a passing car noticed her. Her name was Nell Schneider, and she was a Dutch immigrant who had moved to Perth a few years earlier with her husband Jan in search of a better life than could be found in post-war Holland. She was 26 years old and a mother of two, and she had been on her way home from choir practice when Eric Cook decided on a whim to strike And she was like, this is not what I wanted after choir practice. No, she went to two different church choirs that day. Like, she was just there, like, singing about Jesus and, like, having a grand old time. And Eric Cook just randomly had this urge and decided to hit her with his car. So the police and the ambulance were called, obviously, and she was rushed to Royal Perth Hospital. The police investigated the hit and the run. Um, They found Nell's bike, like, crumpled up a few hundred meters away from where the crash had happened. And they noticed the imprint of a vehicle on the bike. And they also found traces of light blue paint that gave them an indication of what color car they were looking for. And shortly after that, they found the Ford console abandoned a few suburbs away. They ran the plates and found the owner who had reported the car stolen that morning. But with no fingerprints or any evidence as to who committed the crime, the case basically went cold. Did Nell she survive? A- yeah, I'm going to tell you that. Okay. Nell was in, a- was in a coma for two weeks after the attack, suffering from severe damage to her brain. She was in hospital for a further two weeks before she was allowed to continue her recovery at home. And while she did recover to a certain degree, she suffered from chronic post-traumatic temporal lobe epilepsy, which caused severe blackouts and seizures for the rest of her life. Still, Nell survived. Later victims of Cook would not be so lucky. So a couple of months after the attack on Nell Schneider, Cook attacked a teenage girl named Molly McLeod who was sleeping in her bed while Cook was rummaging through her house. He had, so he was stealing things from the house. He nipped outside to relieve himself and then came back. Um, and when he came back in the door, like, like the door just like hit against the wall or something like that and it made a noise and Molly started to wake up. So Cook hit her over the head, which knocked her unconscious, and then he left the house. He hit her so hard that it fractured her skull and she like, she fell unconscious, right? And then she woke up in the morning with like a bloody fractured skull and she had no idea what had happened to her. She didn't remember anybody. How fucked would that be? How fucked up would that be? Can you just imagine waking up covered in blood with a fractured skull? What the hell happened? Yeah. So they went to the doctor and everything, and the doctor was like, I don't know, you have a fractured skull. And she was like, how do I have a fractured (laughs) skull? I was in my bed. And it, like, it fucked her up. They never had, well, they didn't find out until years and years later what had actually happened to her that night. So the police You'd never want to sleep again. You would never want to sleep again. Just not knowing, like, is just horrific. But she was fine. She survived. I mean, she was traumatized, but she survived. So in December of 1958, Cook struck again. He had continued prowling and breaking and entering, but he kind of felt that urge again to commit another violent crime. So on the 27th of December, he had stolen another car and was driving around the suburb of Belmont when he noticed a woman walking home alone. So Kathy Bellis was on her way home from her shift as a waitress at E.G. Patman's Tea Rooms. 
Usually she wouldn't be walking home late as her husband Philip would pick her up from the bus stop, but the bus was late and Philip had like come to the bus stop to pick her up, but she wasn't there. He waited around for a bit and was like, mm, don't know what to do. The kids were back at home and he couldn't leave them for too long, so he went back, meaning that Kathy had to walk. It wasn't a long walk, but it was nighttime and it was in a suburb that was like not fully developed yet, so it was quite like semi-rural, so it was dark, no streetlights, etc. Um... So Cook had spotted Kathy getting off at the bus stop and Kathy could see like headlights behind her and she assumed that it was her husband coming to pick her up. So she like started waving and then realized that it wasn't her husband's van. So she moved to the side of the road to let the car pass. She kept walking and then she could hear the engine revving and she moved further off the side of the road, kind of thinking that the car was like telling move her to way. move out of the way. Yeah. And then she heard the engine continue to rev. And then she turned around to see the car hurtling towards her at full speed. Kathy was hit so hard that she was thrown 60 feet, which is 19 meters, through the air. Once again, Cook just sped her off, leaving Kathy in a heap in the side of the road. Neighbors heard Kathy's cries and called the ambulance and ran to tell her husband, Phil. Kathy was rushed to hospital and she had suffered from a broken pelvis, a broken leg, a broken knee, a fractured spine, and a fractured skull. Holy fucking shit. She also had pieces of metal embedded in her face, but she was still alive. So the police investigated the hit and run. They initially suspected her husband, Phil, because their van was, like, covered in dents, but they managed to – they cleared him when they found the car that Cook had abandoned a few miles away. And they were satisfied that Kathy was the victim of a targeted attack from an unknown person in a stolen vehicle. But nobody made any connection between this hit and run and the attack on Nell Schneider. A month later – Cook was ready to go again. So on the 29th of January, 1959, Cook was doing his usual nighttime activities of prowling around houses, and he had stolen a knife with an eight-inch blade off a bike in the suburb of Wembley. So he was, you know, walking around, seeing what he could see through the windows, breaking into people's houses, etc., etc., when he ended up at a block of flats at Mill Point Road, and he could see a woman sleeping in her bed through the window. Cook entered the flat, searching the kitchen and the living room for anything valuable before he entered the sleeping woman's room. The woman was Penina Berkman, who was a very glamorous lady who worked at the perfume counter at David Jones and who was dating a local radio personality. She's so a teasy she bitch. Like, she was the teasy bitch. She was the Jess Kate Ryan of, like, 1959 per. I am not, not teasy enough counter. to serve at the perfume counter at David Jones and I'm definitely not dating a radio personality because I'm not dating anybody. But if you did work at the perfume counter at David Jones and if you were <laughs> dating a local radio personality, you and this lady would be quite similar. So Cook came into the bedroom and he was delighted to discover that she was sleeping naked. And Panina, like, woke up. So Cook panicked. He knew that he that Panina couldn't really see his face in the dark, but he didn't want to take any chances of being caught or identified. So he grabbed the knife that he had just stolen and stabbed Panina, who fought back. She screamed loudly and she scratched Cook, dragging her fingernails down his face, which left three deep scratches. Yes, bitch. Yes, bitch. Cook wasn't a big guy at all, but he could still overpower Panina. He stabbed her again and again until he reached her heart and she stopped fighting back. Holy shit. He fled the apartment, leaving Panina dead on the floor and the door wide open. Fuck me. He dropped the knife down a drain and abandoned the car he had again stolen some way away. Panina's boyfriend would discover her body the next day, but she wasn't on the bed where Cook had left her. 
She had managed to struggle her way to the door, trying to find help, but sadly she had succumbed to her injuries. So the murder was pretty big news, um, not just because Penina was well-liked and because she was dating a well-known person, but it actually was kind of like a big scandal because she was like, she was divorced and she had been stabbed, like, she was, like, sleeping naked in her bed. And, like, her boyfriend had been over that night. Like, it was, like, kind of like a tabloidy kind of story. They kind of dead. They, Get wrecked. I know. So it was, like, they were kind of like, you know, this this questionable woman was stabbed while sleeping naked in her bed. But um, I, when I was, like, doing more research on the case, I kind of found out that there's been, like, a little bit of a, like, push to kind of like reframe the murder if that makes sense like and kind of like not be like oh this 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 lady like to to de-tabloid it like people have really like done work into like you know finding out about Panina's family and like letting her son so she had an 11 year old son who like was put into a foster home and then moved to Israel after his mum was murdered and he like never knew what happened to her until like this book came out and you know, people were like, hey, that was your mom. Like, this is what happened to her. And, like, retold her story in, like, a more positive way. So I was glad to see that, you know, people have tried to kind of right that wrong of the way that this was reported. Anyway, that was a sidebar. So there was a full-scale murder investigation, obviously. There was a little bit of evidence, including, like, blood found underneath Panina's fingernails. But, like, DNA hadn't been invented yet. So what are you going to do with that? Just find the blood type, I guess. Um, neighbors, se- uh, several neighbors had reported hearing screaming between 2.45 and 3 a.m. And many people uh, reported seeing a prowler the night before, trying to get into a house a few streets away just before 2 a.m. And this wasn't the first time people had reported seeing a prowler in the neighborhood. So they kind of had like this picture. They kind of knew that there had been somebody trying to break into houses around that time. But they didn't have any idea who it was. And there was no fingerprint evidence because he always wore his gloves. So a coronial inquest into the murder was begun and then it was adjourned to allow police time to gather more evidence. Cook wasn't worried about the murder at all. He wasn't, he was like, there's no way, nobody's ever going to link it to me. There's no evidence. I'm fine. Not stressed at all. Um, And he came up with a cover story to explain the big scratches on his face. He told his wife, Sally, that their son, Michael, who was mentally disabled, had been, they'd been playing together and he'd just gotten rowdy and scratched him. Um, so nobody, nobody suspected him. Nobody was like, you know, this person died and then you come up the next day covered in wounds. Like, it was just fine. Um, so he, he kept on breaking and entering like nothing had happened. Um, he attacked a woman who was sleeping named Alex Donkin on the 8th of August, 1959. So he's prowling at her flat in his favorite neighborhood, which is Nedlands, and he'd stolen uh, six pounds from her handbag. And he was looking for more valuables in her bedroom when she'd woken up. And just like with Molly McLeod, he punched her over the head and she was knocked out. And then again, Alex woke up the next day and had no idea what happened to her. And she was like wandering around her day like normal, like in the morning. And then two of her friends came and like knocked on her door and was like, you were covered in blood. Like she was just in a daze and had no idea what had happened to her. And then they took her to the hospital and it was discovered that her skull had been fractured. Um, And the wound was serious enough to cause lifelong epilepsy. And Alex had been at school studying to be a nurse, but then they were like, you have epilepsy you have epilepsy you can't be a nurse anymore so her life was like absolutely ruined and once again there was no fingerprints or any evidence she had no idea what happened to her again until years later 
So on the 19th of December 1959, uh, Cook committed his next murder. Only his second, although he had left plenty of pain and injury in his wake. So his pre-murder activities were the same as usual, robbing houses, prowling around, peeping Tom, etc. So on this night in question, he was prowling around the suburb of Cottesloe. So Gillian Brewer was the he- was the heir to the McPherson's Confectionery fortune. I've never heard of McPherson's Confectionery, have you? McPherson's. I don't know if it still exists. But she was going to find out. She was like a Perth Paris Hilton. Um so she was the she was the heir to this company, but she was also like a well-known interior designer. Um and she lived in this flat next door to her mother, Betty Johnston. So Cook had robbed Betty a few months prior and had watched Gillian through her window before as well. So he had gone to another house that he'd been to before in the neighborhood and stole a hatchet from their garage. He then went to Gillian Brewer's house, breaking in through the back door. He bypassed her handbag and her valuables, heading straight into Gillian's room. She, like Penina, was sleeping naked in her bed. He raised the hatchet and struck her. He struck her breasts, genital area, head, thighs, her face, and across her throat. He fractured her pubic bone and her skull and severed her windpipe. And he had a little break, and then he came back with a pair of scissors and stabbed her in the breasts and abdomen, piercing her liver and stomach. That is some fucking anger. Like, that is... That's fucked. That's, like, fucked. Yeah. So his final... That's a clinical term. It's fucked, okay? Yeah. Diagnosis fucked. Um, he stabbed her a final time in the left butt cheek. So in total, he'd stabbed her 13 times with the hatchet and five times with the scissors without making any sound. Gillian Brewer's fiance discovered her in the bed the next morning with the sheet pulled up around her chin and a pillow over her chest, which covered her obvious wounds, but not the copious amounts of blood covering her face and the walls. The doctor so and the sorry, police were called um, immediately. Fifi just like kicked the blind and after I oh, just jumped like sketchy. Uh huh. So the doctor and the police were called immediately. Um, The police found the hatchet, which was just abandoned on the other side of the flat's fence. And once again, there were no fingerprints or other usable evidence at the scene. There was neighbors didn't report hearing anything. There were no witnesses or anything like that. It was literally like he just snuck in, did it without any person knowing. Not even her mother, who lived next door. This is like some Visalia ransacker bullshit. It is. It, this whole case reminded me so much of, like, the Golden State Killer. Like, everything about it is so similar. The, the, the feelings, like, the, you know, when no, he didn't, he didn't rape anybody. But, um. No, but it's still, like, that intrusion feeling of that someone intrusion, like coming in, you know. Exactly. And getting pleasure from intruding. Like, it's not about stealing, although, no. like, stealing is a benefit. It's about he was being doing in somebody's. Because to fuck people up. He was doing it to fuck people up, exactly. And the money was just, like, a side benefit. So unlike the hit and runs, um, police were pretty quick to realize the similarities between this murder and the murder of Penina Berkman. So two young unmarried women sleeping alone and naked, brutally stabbed within 11 months of each other, was not normal in Perth in the 1950s. The cliche here was true. This was a town where everybody knew everyone, people kept their doors unlocked, and murders just didn't happen. So Sally, Eric's wife, was frightened, having read about the murder in the newspaper. Cook told her not to read about such awful things and then asked Sally to provide him an alibi because he was like, well, the police are going to try and pin out anybody with a record. Like, you're going to have to cover for me if they come looking. And she agreed. But Cook was right. The police were questioning all the known loiterers and peeping toms and they were keen to pin it on anyone with a record. 
So Cook was questioned about six weeks after Dillian's murder um, when he was arrested and convicted of loitering, a crime which carried a month-long prison sentence. So when he was in prison for loitering, he was questioned and he denied any knowledge of the crime. So the police would eventually find their killer in the form of Daryl Raymond Beamish. So Beamish was 19 years old and he was deaf and mute. He could communicate only through sign language or writing stuff down. And he was awaiting... This is not stunning. He was awaiting sentencing for molesting a four- and five-year-old girl when he was questioned... Well, four- and five-year-old girls when he was questioned about the murder of Gillian Brewer. Holy shit. Beamish ended up confessing. So he confessed... He actually confessed to the murder a couple of times. He confessed when he was interviewed, and then he had a written confession, and then he confessed a third time. So he was charged with the murder in June of 1961, but he pled not guilty. He said that his confessions were coerced, but the jury didn't buy it. And he would end up being sentenced to death, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison a few months later. So being questioned about Gillian's murder and spending another month in prison didn't seem to spook Cook. Getting away with so many violent and nonviolent crimes was making him feel untouchable. On April 9th, 1960, he felt the urge to kill come over him again. He had been prowling around South Como and South Perth. He had been crawling around, excuse me, Como and South Perth. Those are two separate suburbs. And he had just headed to Bayswater in a stolen car when he saw a girl that he actually knew. He often gave Glennis Peak lifts to work in his truck. Glennis was on her way home after a night of dancing, and she was in kind of a mixed mood. She was, she was annoyed because she'd run into a guy who had stood her up for a date while she was at the dance, and they'd like gotten into an argument, and she'd slapped him in the face. Which like yes, bitch. Yes, Glennis. Good stuff. Um, Doing God's work. So she was really upset about that. But on the train home, she met some friends and she was like getting her spirits back up. But she still couldn't stop thinking about this this incident that had happened with this guy. So she got off the train just before midnight and she told her friends that she didn't need to be escorted the rest of the way home. So Cook watched as like a man and a woman like approached an intersection and the woman went one way and the man went the other and he followed the woman, which was Glennis. He drove up Irvine Street, the street that Glennis had turned into, and Glennis saw the car drive past her and then turned right into Mount Street. And then Glennis passed the street and she saw the car parked there and she could see that the driver was still in the driver's seat, but like the headlights weren't on or anything like that. She kept walking, thinking that it was weird, but she didn't pay too much mind. Then she heard the car start up again, but it turned left back down Irvine Street and away from her. She kept on walking home and then a few minutes later, she heard the car again. She could hear it accelerating and heard the engine revving. She was walking on the opposite side of the road, and then she realized that the car was heading straight for her. Cook struck her. She was thrown over the bonnet and fell into a pile of broken glass at the edge of the road. And Glennis, like, she was, like, knocked in, like, she was hit by a car, fell in a fucking pile of broken glass, like, the absolute worst place you could possibly fall after being hit by a car. And she lay there for a while in, like, extreme pain, and then she got up and walked home. Fuck, I beg your pardon. She was like lying there and she was like, if I don't get up, he could come back. I've got to, I've got to. She got up and walked? She got up and walked home. Get wrecked. Okay, honestly, if I ever have, if I have a bitch about anything ever again, I'm going to be like, remember that time that Glennis got hit by a car, was thrown into a pile of glass and then got up and walked home? She walked home. She walked home home i feel like i'm summoning mount everest every time i walk home after a night out you know what i mean i'm like i am the world's bravest person like look at me she got up and walked 
home. Oh, legends. There are legends walking among legends. us that we don't even know. So her parents were pretty surprised to see her come in the door covered in blood and gravel and glass. They took her to the hospital and she got stitched up. And the police tried to question her, but she was kind of in too much of a daze to really answer the questions properly. Um, so they went back to the scene. They saw the car tracks. They found her watch on the side of the road. And they also found the car, which was abandoned only a few hundred meters away. When police re-interviewed Glennis a few days later, she told the police that she was sure it had been deliberate. It wasn't an accident. She knew that the car was coming straight for her. But she said that she thought it was the boy that she had slapped at the dance getting his revenge. But they, they checked into it and his name was cleared. And he was like, sure, but I would deliberately run over a girl. Yeah, he was like, okay, I'm not thrilled that you slapped me at the dance in front of all of my friends, but also I wouldn't murder you for it. Wouldn't try to kill you cool Mm -hmm. so the police also looked into the owner of the car and he'd sold it to a car yard and it had been it was being driven by like one of the car salesmen so the police were like haha our culprit but then they checked out his alibi and it was fine so once again nothing to go on so glennis's story about being deliberately hit had made the newspaper but it wasn't really connected to the other hit and runs and of course cook wasn't worried so a month after hitting glennis he was at it again he was prowling again in Como and South Perth. Um, he found a suitable vehicle, a Morris Minor, which was parked in a driveway with the keys in the ignition. All of these people leaving the keys in the ignition. I know it was the 1950s, but like... But come on, it, Dolls. You're asking for trouble. You're, you're, you're asking for something, that's for sure. So he rolled it out of the driveway. You're asking for people to come and steal your car. You, you truthfully are. Like, at that point, I'm like, oh, if I saw a car with the keys in the ignition, I'd, I'd think about it. Um... So he rolled it out of the driveway, started a little bit down the road, and went for a drive. So Jill Connell was a popular waitress at a milk bar in London Court in the Perth CBD. She often worked quite late nights. She was really anxious at this time because she had been followed home by a customer the week prior. So this guy had this guy named Arthur had started talking to her after work and was like, so when do you get off, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, haha, leave me alone. And then he followed her in his... But he, like, drove after her, following her home in his blue ute. So she called the bus after her shift, and she was, like, spent the entire time looking for the blue ute. She was sure that it was going to be following her. Um, she got off the bus, and when she was walking down the street towards home, she was terrified to hear the roar of a car engine. She looked around, and she was like, oh, my God, thank God, it's not the blue ute. I'm fine. But she still, like, started walking, walking quicker. So the car did a U-turn and it drove back past her and she started to get more freaked out because it wasn't usual for cars to be in the suburb, her suburb of Belmont at that time of night. So she heard the car roar up behind her again and she was like, okay, this is fucked. And she tried to run off the road, but she didn't make it in time. The car just followed her and hit her. So she hit the bonnet and crashed into the windscreen windscreen and the car got bogged in the soft sand on the side of the road so he couldn't drive off so he just got out of the car and walked away and he laughed at her when he saw her body like underneath the car he laughed at her as he was walking away which i just think is like like that's that's fucked anyway so sometime later uh neighbors heard moaning sounds and went out to investigate they filled Jill, They found Jill lying, freezing, unconscious in a pool of blood, and a bone was sticking out of her leg. <laughs> the police were called, and Jill was taken to RPH. They, the police found blood on the bonnet of the car, as well as a big dent in the bonnet and windscreen. Um, they checked, and the car had been reported stolen about two hours prior. 
So the police are like checking out the scene and they come across this man standing in his front yard and they're like, what are you doing here? And he's like, this is my house. I'll stand in the yard if I want to. And the police were like, it is freaking 3 a.m. What are you doing? And he was like, oh, well, actually, I'm waiting here because my daughter hasn't returned home from work yet. And the police were like, you need to come with us immediately. So they took him and he found, like, he was taken to RPH and was, like, devastated and was like, who has done this to my daughter? Anyway, it was really tragic. Um, So the family rushed to RPH and they actually drove past the scene of the crime on their way. They were like, oh, wow, a car accident has also happened. And then they got to the hospital and they were uh-uh. like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. uh-uh. Um, but Jill was kind of okay. She had broken bones and lacerations and she needed surgery to realign her broken leg, but she wasn't going to die. A few days later, Jill was questioned by the police and she immediately gave up the name Arthur, the name of the man who had followed her in the blue ute, but the police couldn't find him. They cleared the owner of the car as a suspect as well. Once again, there was nothing to go on. Jill would live, but she spent 10 months in plaster as her fractured leg struggled to heal. Only a week later, Cook was out again, having stolen a very fancy Chrysler Royale after a night of stealing. So it was a very rainy evening. Cook spotted three girls taking shelter from the rain at Queen's Park train station. He watched them as they walked out of the station under two umbrellas. So two of the girls were under one umbrella and one girl was under the other. Georgia Pittman had met Therese Zagami and Maureen Rogers that evening. And Therese, Therese and Maureen had been at a show while Georgina had been out dancing. They met on the train and decided to share an umbrella for the walk home. At first, the girls who thought, them, thought that the man in the fancy Chrysler Royale was a taxi driver, and they tried to wave him down for the lift. But the car just drove past them, leaving them in the rain, so they decided to walk. So Cook had actually driven off and done a U-turn and was waiting behind them with the engine off to give the girls a bit of a head start before he went after them. He had noticed that there was a difference in age between the girls, so the two older ones were sharing the umbrella, but the one that was by herself looked no older than 10, so he decided to target the two bigger girls. Therese, the 10-year-old, yelled look out to her cousin Maureen and their new friend Georgina, but it was too late. The car was driving straight for them. Maureen was thrown onto the bonnet and Georgina was thrown into a ditch on the side of the road. Maureen was still on the bonnet of the car as Cook drove off, her body sliding a few hundred meters away from Georgina. Cook had escaped again. He parked the car in a random street and walked home. Maureen was lying in a bloody heap in the middle of the road, and Georgina was stumbling around dazed and concussed. Teresa was uninjured but fucking terrified, worried that the car was going to come back and get her. So Teresa managed to run the few hundred meters up to her aunt's house, and she woke her aunt up, telling her what happened and screaming the entire time that it was deliberate. Once again, they called the ambulance, they called the police, but there were no leads. But the pattern was becoming much clearer. Three hit and runs had occurred within the span of six weeks, all three at night, all in stolen vehicles, and all occurring on the weekend. The newspaper ran the story of the attack on the three girls with the headline, Is a hit-run maniac on the loose? Which, yes. Yes. Yes, there is a hit-run maniac on the loose. So kind of you to notice. So the police investigation into the hit and runs on Glennis Peak, Jill Connell, and Maureen Rogers had all come to the same conclusion. There was one perpetrator committing all of the crimes, but there was still no evidence as to who this perpetrator was, and there was no connection to the earlier hit and runs. So Cook had seen the article in the paper about the hit run maniac, but he wasn't concerned. He'd spent another month in prison in September of 1962 for loitering. When he was released, he went and spent some time in the country. Um, getting in some country prowling when he was there. 
and he had some close encounters when he was in the country and also when he came back in Perth with people catching him in the act and being like, what are you doing here, mate? And him being like, nothing, just taking a walk and people being like, get the fuck out of my property. So people did kind of... Did you say get the fuck out of my broccoli? My property. (laughs) Get the fuck out of my broccoli. I was like, like crops or yeah, you know, I'm 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 a broccoli farmer, and you're in my broccoli. <laughs> so um, anyway, people kind of knew that there was like a prowler around. Like this is Perth, like the population of Perth at this time was like five hundred thousand. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like some massive town. Like people were like, oh, there's this guy been spotted in my suburb prowling around looking into people's windows, and people were like. There's a prowler in my suburb looking in people's windows, and also my money has also been stolen. Perhaps the same it is person. The same person. Yes, it was kind of like you know some people knew that something something was happening. So on the third of March, nineteen sixty-two, Cook was robbing the home of Anne Melvin. He was robbing her house. Saw her lying alone in the bed. He took a length of towel and he he tied it around her neck pulling it and strangling her, causing her to fall unconscious. He pulled the sheet off the bed and took off her pajama pants. He then nipped outside. He heard a noise and, like, ran outside, came back in, and realized that Anne was starting to wake up. So he went to her bathroom, grabbed a pair of stockings, and tied one end to the bed head and the other around her arm to stop her from escaping. He then heard another noise outside, ran outside again, and this time when he came back, Anne was, like, full-on awake, and she was pulling at the towel that was tied around her throat and screaming. Um, And Cook just ran away, leaving her there. So Anne kept screaming, and she managed to free her arm and pull the towel away from her throat. Um, So her sister usually shared a bedroom with her, but her sister was away at the time, but, like, kind of in, like, the adrenaline, the confusion – and forgot that she wasn't there and she thought that she'd been kidnapped so Anne ran out of the house like literally like blue from being strangled with no pants on like screamed out the window trying like onto the veranda to try and like catch this guy who had in her mind kidnapped her sister um but cook had cook had more of a head start and he'd already run away but neighbors luckily were like hey Anne, why are you screaming naked on the balcony and why and blue? blue Yeah, so they called the ambulance. Um, Like, literally, like, not, like, a couple of months after that, on the 29th of December, 1962, so he, he'd spent the evening playing 10-pin bowling with his mates this night, pretending that he was a single guy, having a flirt with the ladies before he headed out for his other favorite nighttime activity. This time, he tied a handkerchief around his face so that no one would recognize his distinctive facial scar because he was worried that Anne Melvin had seen too much of his face when he'd attacked her. So he was in the suburb of Cottesloe, and he was uh, returning to a house that he'd visited previously. A woman was asleep on the sleep-out at the front of the house, and a chair was propped up against the door handle. So I don't understand this. I'm just going to repeat this sentence because I don't understand how it works. A chair was propped up against the door handle, but he could reach around the door and move the chair. Maybe there was a, like, window next to the door? I guess so. It was not clear. I just, Maybe, like... Maybe, like, because, you know, like, in old Queensland is how they have, like, they have, like, the front door and then there's, like, a weird bit where there's, like, mm. it's, like, a place for you to, like, put your shoes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's another door to get into the house. Maybe there was, like, a window possibly Maybe. something like that somehow he moved the chair and opened the door i have that yeah. in bold with like a question mark after it um so he 
started looking around the room, like using a torch to find look for this girl's purse, which he had taken money from like previously. And the woman who was sleeping on the bed sat up and yelled. He shone the torch in her eyes so she couldn't look at him properly, which is another Golden State Killer move, and then hit her in the face. Um, but she didn't she didn't stop screaming. She was still conscious. She kept on screaming and Cook just ran away. So Peggy Flory, which is the woman, um, her parents ran into the room. She was bleeding from her eye where her cook had struck her and her dad had said that he, it looked like her eye had been gouged out. So Peggy was traumatized after the attack. The police went to the hospital and she was just screaming. Like she wasn't even, she was not capable of talking. She was literally just yelling. Um, but Afterwards, they managed to interview her, and her story gelled with a number of other reports in the neighborhood of a prowler. So the descriptions of the prowler were similar between all these reports. Between 5'9 and 5'10, slender, well-dressed, wearing a hat, and always wearing white gloves that were quite tight and came only an inch or so up his wrist. Glove prints had been found at many of the houses that had been broken into. So police started kind of increasing surveillance in this area. So they had night patrols, um... And like oh, basically, this is so similar to GSK. It's so similar, so fucking similar. Okay, yeah. So oh, the direct. Hello, Fifi. Fifi's been active tonight. So the oh, hello, princess. I can see her. So the director of the CIB, um, Inspector Lamb, stressed in a memo that it was important to catch the perpetrator of these crimes before he escalated to more serious offenses. Which it's like a mm, bit late, but thanks for trying. So Cook escalated big time on Australia Day, 1963. It gets the worst. So, mm-hmm. Cook went. <laughs> it's not a great day. It's not a great Cook day. Cook went bowling, went and visited his mother, and then he stopped at the Hurlingham Hotel for a shandy, and then to the Coma Hotel for a few middies, leaving around 8:30 p.m. It was now dark enough for him to start his favorite activity: nighttime prowling. So the first house that he broke into, there was somebody sleeping in the bedroom, but he didn't really pay them any mind. He grabbed four pounds from the bedroom and then went to search the wardrobe where he found a 22 rifle and a stash of bullets. 22 caliber rifle and a stash of bullets. He left the house, careful not to disturb anything else so as not to alarm the owner of of the rifle to its absence. He broke into the house of a senator at 122 Forest Street, stole 37 pounds in total, which was like probably a million dollars back then, I don't know. Um... He went to another house. There was another house that he wanted to get into, but the light was on, so he moved on. He decided to steal the car that was parked outside instead, taking out the interior light and rolling the car into the driveway, out of the driveway. So he drove west through the city and onto Cottesloe. He parked in a nature strip on Grant Street, and he started roaming the streets. This is like, this is like three streets away from Peggy Flurry's house, where there was now like an increased police presence. So he was he was playing risky business. He spotted a couple parked in a car on the verge and he decided to literally sit in the bushes across from them and watch them. So Rowena Reeves and Nicholas August had been out with two of their friends, but the two friends had left, which had left just them in the car. And they were just like, they were just sitting in the car drinking champagne. They weren't doing anything. Um, But Nick August was married. So it was a little bit like questionable. So Nick was sitting in the front and Rowena was in the back and Cook was in the bushes waiting for the action in the car to heat up a little bit. Um, after a short while, the interior light turned on and Rowena could see Cook sitting in the bushes. 
So Nick yelled at him and threw a bottle at him, and Cook raised the gun. Rowena noticed the gun, yelled, look out, and pushed Nick's head down. The bullet hit the back of his neck and went through Rowena's wrist, which is awful. <sighs> but she pushed him down. So imagine if he was still sitting up. He would have gotten shot straight in the head. Like, he would have died instantly. Um, so Cook, like, stood up now out of the bushes and went after them again with the gun and shot at the car, but the bullet missed. So Nick did his best to drive to Fremantle Hospital, but he had, like, literally just been shot and was losing a lot of blood, so he was not, like, the best at driving at that point in his life. Um, But eventually they made it, surprising the hospital staff with their bullet wounds and their blood-drenched clothing. The police were called, and Rowena gave a description of the perpetrator, with Nick adding that he looked like he was wearing something tied around his mouth. So Cook was furious that Nick and Rowena had gotten away relatively unharmed. So he headed back to where he'd abandoned the car, stopping at 124 Broom Street at a block of flats. Cook climbed the stairs and jumped over the railing into the patio. The door was open. The patio door was open and Cook walked right into the bedroom where 29-year-old Brian Weir was sleeping. He pointed the gun at Brian's head, shooting him at point-blank range, the force of the impact throwing Brian's body into the air. Holy shit. Brian was a young, fit, and active guy. He was super smart. He'd begun a really flashy job as an accountant with BP only a year prior, and he was due to be married in three months. Cook left the scene, heading back to the car. He drove back to Perth to Nedlands, parking the car on Princess Road. He roamed the streets looking for his next victim. John Sturkey was sleeping on the veranda at 54 Vincent Street. Once again, an easy target. Cook went into the house first to see if there was anything good in the fridge, another similarity to Golden State Killer, um, before walking out into the veranda. He stood two feet away from the bed, held the rifle at his hip like some try-hard cowboy, and shot John in the forehead. John was only a teenager, about to head to Brisbane to start a degree in veterinary science. He lived at the boarding house between uni semesters, and he was happy to sleep on the veranda as it offered a bit of relief from the scorching hot Perth summer nights. Cook kept going. Number 51 Louise Street was next. This time, his MO was different. He rung the doorbell at like three, four o'clock in the morning and waited for someone to answer. A man in his dressing gown opened the door to see Cook standing there with the rifle drawn. Cook shot, hitting George Walmsley in the forehead. His daughter Sarah, woken up by the doorbell, had been woken up by the doorbell and then heard the sound of the shotgun and she ran to the door to find her father on the ground, lying in a pool of blood, eyes glazed over and barely alive. He would die in hospital a little bit over an hour later. Bloodlust finally satisfied, Cook dumped the ammunition in the bushland at Kings Park. He drove to Narrows Bridge and threw the gun in the river. While Cook was driving back home to his family, hospital staff at RPH were trying valiantly to save the lives of John Sturkey and George Walmsley, but they both, both died in hospital shortly after arrival. The body of Brian Weir would be found until 8am. He arrived at RPH at 9am with part of his head blown away. He was rushed into emergency sur- surgery, and Brian's family waited in the waiting room for eight hours. His fiancée Mary arrived as soon as she heard the news. The surgery was a success, removing the bullet from Brian's brain, but he was in a coma for six months. Miraculously, he awoke, but the damage was severe. He was totally paralyzed on one side, couldn't speak, and couldn't walk. He was blind and deaf on one side and had epileptic fits. He would need round-the-clock care for the rest of his life, which sadly would be only for another three years. He suffered a serious epileptic fit and died on the 19th of January, 1965. 
Oh my god, that's so awful. So Brian Weir isn't considered an official victim of Cook's Australia Day rampage, but he like absolutely was. He would absolutely. not have died. So the investigation into the rampage was massive. Every Perth police officer was involved, a special incident room was set up, and there were 24-hour patrols cruising the streets. Kings Park was searched, but no evidence was found, even though Cook did hide the bullets there. So, like, there was evidence there, dudes, you just needed to go and get it, but they didn't find anything. So, there were two initial suspects, um, two people who had been also out committing crimes that night, but they were eventually dismissed. Um, They found a spent cartridge on Louise Street, and the bullets retrieved from Brian, John, and George's bodies were all examined and were determined to have been fired from the same gun, which was, as I said, a twenty-two caliber rifle. 60,000 of the 75,000 licensed twenty-two single-shot rifles in Western Australia were test-fired to find a match, but there was no match. So Nick August and Rowena Reeves, the shooting victims who survived, uh, were kind of treated like as a separate case. So the police thought that they knew their attacker and that it was impossible for them to have seen the person in the bush. Like, they didn't believe their story. They were like, there's no way you saw this person in the bushes from where you were sitting. And they were like, yes, we did. Um, So they reenacted it, like, at the same, like, time of the month when, like, the moon was, like, the same, like, place in the sky. So they could see if they could see anybody in the bushes. And they couldn't. So obviously that means that they were lying. So they thought that they had made, they thought that they knew their attacker and they were lying about knowing it so that like evidence, like the story about like this woman sitting in this car with a married man didn't like become public knowledge, which like 1960s, like come on. So the final police report um, reaffirmed the police's belief that they were lying about not knowing their attacker and they didn't officially link their shooting to the shooting of John, George, and Brian. Three days after the shooting, the coroner's court found that Penina Berkman had been stabbed to death by an unknown person. So, shootings happened three days later. The coronial inquest finally finished and found that she had been stabbed by an unknown person. But a detective had told the court during these inquests that he was sure that there was no connection between Penina's murder and the Australia Day shootings. He was like, don't you worry, folks, there's the unrelated crimes, just two random, horrifically violent crimes happening in this town that didn't have that many murders all at the same time. Nothing to see here. Move along. So this information did, like, bring some relief to the Perth public who were like, well, at least, you know, there's not some madman around. At least there's just two murderers or something. Um, but, the you know... This was, like, after this, people, like, this was, like, the moment in Perth that was, like, okay, life isn't the same anymore. Like, people started locking their doors and, like, taking their keys out of the ignition of their cars and, like, Taking tablets so they didn't have to sleep. Yeah, exactly. But literally, like, people said that, you know, they would lock up all their windows and doors at night, which in Perth in summer, like, means that... So hot. It's so hot. Like, there's there's a massive consequence to doing that. You know what I mean? So Eric Edgar Cook was a killer like no one had ever seen before. He didn't have one set MO. He stabbed, he bludgeoned, he ran people down with cars, he came in the middle of the night and shot people, he killed both men and women, he would break into people's houses but only steal weird random stuff and like not even cause that much damage, and he could go for a long period of time between murders or attempted murders. Like he would be like a year or like eight months or six months or something between between crimes. 
and he managed to do it all without leaving a trace. So one innocent person had already gone to prison for a murder that Cook had committed, Daryl Beamish, and one more innocent person would go to jail before Cook would eventually be apprehended for any murder, which we will discuss in the next episode. I am disturbed. Mm-hmm. I am shooketh. Mm-hmm. I am also very excited about the next episode. Wow. No wonder everyone talks about this guy. This is so fucked up. I can't believe how fucked up it is, A, and how many similarities to the damn Golden State Killer. Like, oh, my God. So many. But also I think the thing that's most fucked up about it and the thing, the thing that is most scary, as well as like the intru- like people breaking in and like prowlers and stuff like that really freak me out. Like oh, that's a big me fear too. of mine. Uh-huh. Big, big fear. Um, but like cars, knives, mm-hmm. guns. Like literally everything. Like how? Like Jesus. Okay. Wow. Amazing work so far, Ellen. I cannot wait for Thank part you. two. Thank you. VV good. Thanks. It's a look, honestly, my like a my entire like north facing wall is a window. Like this <laughs> entire the blind wall is, down. is a window. The possums outside my window like get freaky all the time and they make the most terrifying noises and all like last night and the night before I was just lying in bed like with my hands to my heart being like there's somebody outside my window there's somebody outside my window and then I would hear the possum noise and be like oh no it's just the possums getting rowdy but oh my god that's how I felt about I'll be I'll be gone in the dark oh yeah I started reading about Visalia and GSK Uh I was like I didn't and like thankfully he got caught caught big time because like I somehow rationalized in my head I was like well he could still be alive he could be here and then we found out who he was I don't know um not to like harp on about like my true crime experience but somebody did break into my house when I was younger and like (gasps) oh I love this story please tell this story oh I'm not gonna tell the whole story somebody broke into my house anyway and then like I woke up and etc etc um Tell the story. No, I don't want to tell the story. It was a crime. <laughs> Did they ever catch him? No. Nah. No, nah, he got away with it. Um, he didn't do anything, like, bad. He was just in my house. You know what I mean? Like, he was he was doing this kind of thing. Like, he was in my house. I don't know what his, like, ultimate goal was, but he was, like, in my house. And I was like, um, excuse me, do you need help? And he was like, he had, like, a story about – anyway, it doesn't matter. But, like, the feeling of, like, somebody being in your – personal space space, like that violation of safety like never goes away like I like it is like still to this day like it was my biggest fear before it happened and it is still my biggest fear and I get so scared you know hearing noises I mean everybody gets scared when they hear noises at night but like I am like I get so freaked out by it and nothing even happened to me like no it was just a freaky experience i can't imagine being like molly mcleod and um alex donkin with a fractured skull and just going like what the fuck happened knowing that somebody had done that to you and not like knowing how or knowing who did it it's fucked anyway well the next part Part is sad yeah Mm -hmm. i'm not stoked um okay cool uh thanks so much ellen you're welcome anytime um as we said at the top fifi (laughs) you need to settle like honestly ellen she has been like i've never seen her this wild before it's because she misses me like zane literally picked her up from the scruff of her neck and she was like 
That's Dad. naughty. <laughs> Um, okay, anyway, thanks. As I said at the top of the show, if you want to become a Patreon, we'll have that uh, link in the show notes. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Send us your DMs. We love hearing from you. Um, send us an email, Motor in the Land of Oz, if you have any cases that you'd like us to uh, look at. We've got, we're taking submissions for our um, Northern Territory season, which we have coming up next. Um, and then we're going to go into what's going to happen to Mitlu. After. after we've gone through all of the uh, states. Um, so if you want to become a Patreon, you can do that. Uh, you want to go on Redbubble or Public and get sweet, sweet merch, then you should. And we'll see you back in another fortnight for part two. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Make sure your doors are locked. Lock your doors and windows. Lock your doors. Lock your doors. Lock your doors. Lock your doors and windows. Lock your doors and windows. Lucky doors and windows. Goodbye. Goodbye. Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's Not Canon Productions podcast. Forward. It's the one move we're all ready to take. And at the Audi Moving Forward sales event, we're ready to help you on that journey. All Audi dealerships are now open. With tailored solutions to suit your individual needs, like the Audi A6 Saloon, with PCP finance from only €499 per month. Now is the time to make an appointment. Now is the time to start moving forward. Audi. Vorsprung Duck Technik. Terms and conditions apply. Get your broadband moving all around your home so you can start flexing in the living room. And that sourdough can start rising in the kitchen. For streaming from the front door to the attic, connect with our best ever Wi-Fi all around your home. Sky Broadband. Your world is limitless. For more information, see sky.ie forward slash speeds.